learning about inflation and then i was like okay cool if i stayed eighty thousand dollars a year what does that look like next year okay my purchasing power is actually less okay well how do i fix that so like property investing is a vehicle of many but it was a vehicle that i looked at and was like this one i think has the best safety to get to where i want to initially and then as i become more proficient and i learn more about the game of finance i will probably start to diversify and look at other asset classes Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash.Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Josh McMillan. And I'm super excited for this because one of the things that enriches me the most is hearing the stories of people who really are on that quest to create a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And so I'm super excited to dig into your story today. Josh, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Goose. How are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. So, Obviously, we were just having a little bit of a chat before we hit record, and uh, and I'm super keen to dig into so many aspects of your journey because I think what you're doing is um, is both relatable, but also has its own uniqueness, which I think people will learn from, uh, which is going to be good. But to kind of set us up a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Where do you live? How old are you? Tell us a little bit, a bit of context about you. So I recently turned 32, so still quite a young snapper, uh, but I'm an IT consultant. And my job is to basically to go out and talk to businesses about their networking, cybersecurity, and solutions related to Azure. Yeah. Azure. Is, is that Azure? Is that Microsoft Azure? Azure, it, yeah. Azure, Azure. I've got the Everyone's face. got a different pronunciation yeah, of like it. Like Target and Target, uh, the Red Circle Boutique. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And so you're 32, you're in IT consulting. How did you end up in that field? Like what made you go do that? Well, growing up, I went out, I sort of tried a little bit of everything. So finished high school. I knew after high school I wasn't exactly going to dive into anything specific to begin with, so I tried a few different things. I was a carpenter. I did motor mechanic apprenticeship. I was working multiple jobs just on the side to make a bit of income. And I think the crux of it came down to looking into my future and thinking, who are the kind of people that I'm more likely to resonate with? And where do I find those people? And having probably been on the PC and playing games and stuff since 16, IT become the natural progression for that. I was like, well, look, I'm good at computers. Is there something here? I went back to university. I did a whole bunch of study for like 24 months, got a hex debt. Uh, and then after finishing that, I tried to go find a job and couldn't find one for like 18 months until I started sort of building my own labs and creating skills that were sort of more relevant to the job market. Yes. Interesting. Now, now I'm a big advocate for telling people, if you want to go into IT, you don't need to go study for it. There are plenty of courses and things you can find online to make that barred entry much lower. Yep. Just go get some relatable skills and so then you can get So you didn't actually employed. need the qualification. You were just trying to get the skills, mm. right? Yeah. It's, yep. it's so interesting because, um, you know, a little bit of a side quest. But when I um, when I was in my late teens, I was actually building, uh, I got into heavily into event management. That was my career for a really long period of time. And I actually left school early because I was already organizing my own festivals and doing all this kind of stuff. And what was really interesting is, uh, I left school when I was 17. A year later, when I was 18, I was guest lecturing at universities for all the people that were studying event management, trying to work out how to get into it. I was like, no, you just, you don't sit in a lecture hall trying to, you just go and do the event management. <laughs> like, go, don't go do the actual thing that you want to do. So I think, I think there's some really good lessons in that, particularly in today's day and age. It seems like the, you know, the traditional pathways of um, educate, study, get a hex debt, and then go and try and pursue a career like it seems like that's becoming less and less valuable as a pathway uh, in in today's day and age what do you think about that 
I think it's borderline a scam these days, honestly. Like you, most, nearly anybody that I've talked to in IT specifically will tell the same thing. If you show drive and ambition and you're keen to go and learn and problem solve, you will get hired. I think that's the same everywhere though, right? Like I think, I think that's like if, and from a practical sense, as also a business owner, a business who hires people, I think that's the same everywhere. I would hope so because yeah, all hiring managers say the same thing. And like one of the things I'm looking potentially trying to build in the future is to create and curate IT courses with a lower bar to entry to tell or, and teach applicable skills to try and target that exact problem. Mm. Super interesting. What I also like about the way that you approach that is that you went and tried a whole bunch of different stuff. And then you kind of said, where am I going to find my tribe? Now, the implicit part of that was how am I going to create the right economics in my life in a way that I will find the experience enriching and fulfilling because there's loads of ways to make money, right? But there's no point making money if you don't, if you're not with your people, if you're not with your vibe, if you're not with your tribe, if you're not doing your thing your way. So I actually really like that because what that actually points to is kind of like a broader approach to a concept of how do I create a good life? Did you kind of think about that along that process? Yeah, it was a big determining factor, I would say, for why I got into IT as well. Like, I just found I couldn't relate a lot to the kind of people in those sort of trade industries. They wanted very different things out of life. Their challenges were very different than what I was at, like dealing with myself. I've seen a lot of the same problems. And then you kind of get to, a, a, I guess, a personal growth where you move away from those kind of distractions or those kind of people. And then I ended up, I guess, in that category now with IT and I've a whole different world of people, much more interesting. And now it's all about like solving problems better problems than worrying about the stuff from a life from a kind of a, like a life perspective kind of thing what were some of the differences like what were the some of the things where you're like i see the world this way um and by the way just so we're all super on the same page there's nothing wrong with tradies or there's nothing wrong with it like i also <laughs> you know i also used to work in domestic construction and all of that kind of stuff and so it's not about um in any way, shape, or form, that one point of view is better than another, or that you know anything like that. But what's really interesting is that people tend to, you know, find their people. So tend to like people with a similar worldview tend to group together in different ways, socially, professionally, all of that kind of stuff. And so, what I'm interested in is um, the different perspectives that you might have had. What was what were some of the kind of things where you noticed, like, hey, I don't see the world that way? I think it was more lifestyle choices than anything. So they, they had particular lifestyles that just didn't sort of, I didn't match with, wasn't something that I was interested in doing. They liked to, it was basically a Monday to Friday, work hard. And then from the weekend, it was just party. It was go, go, go. And like, I'd done a lot of that in my early teens. I'd, I'd done a lot of the partying. I've gone out a lot. I'd done a lot of the drinking and carrying on. And then I was just over it. But these people were moving into their early twenties, mid twenties and still doing the same thing. And I was like, there's got to be more out of life than this. I want to go find the people who are chasing bigger and better things out of life, whether it be like finding the best places to go holiday, the better places to go make money, you know, the better places to live a, a better life. Like those things are more appealing to me than basically working and then spending their money on booze and alcohol. Yeah. Talk to me then about what is your, like, what, what are you looking for? What you say, like, you want to be able to, these bigger kind of other things. Like, what are the things that you're looking for to make up a good life? And what are some of your goals? Um, impact on others is something that as I'm getting older seems to become more forefront, my thought process. So it's like, how do I give back to others? But then at the same time, having the realization that you need to be able to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And that 
realization also just came through my having like personal relationships and girlfriends over the years. There was a time there where you would hop from different people and you're like, I'm repeating the same mistakes. And then I took quite a long break and just focused on myself, which was the same time I focused on my career. But now, yeah, I look forward to traveling, tasting new foods, new experiences. So it's not so much about the things that I can buy. It's about the things that I can experience because I, you know, you have a realization where you're on this world or this plane of existence and you want to get more out of it. Why do you think about wanting to get more out of it? Um, I feel that we have a finite time to experience things. So being able to try and cram as much of that in as possible is probably the best approach. You know, part of that is also knowledge, like an absolute fiend for wanting to read and learn about new things. And it's probably half the reason why I got into tech. It's just about problem solving at the end of the day. And I look at finances and tech as the same sort of thing. There's a problem. How do you go about fixing the problem? All right, I need to go find information. How do I go and consume different information? All right, cool. Now I need to apply that information to make like practical use out of it. Otherwise, you can suffer from analysis paralysis, which is something I've definitely done in the past many of times. And I'm trying to step out of that comfort zone more and just go, okay, here's something new, write it down, memorize it, and then action on it, and then come back and, I guess, reaffirm whether or not this was a good or a bad decision. Yeah. It's an interesting thing you said about um, wanting to just like cram more stuff in, basically, or whatever it is you said. It's interesting, right? Because, uh, by the way, I'm interested in te- teasing this out because clearly I, think, I actually think you think about this in a fairly similar way to I do. It's, it's nice to, it's kind of interesting to talk about it. But like the first step is recognizing your mortality, mm-hmm. I think, which most people don't do. Or the, the first time they do that is like when they're, I don't know, 50 or 60 and their parents have passed away or something, right? And then they're like, what? Hang on a second all of a sudden mortality is real and that's when you have all these people later in life kind of freaking out and wondering what it's all about. And I, I kind of believe that the earlier on your trajectory you can recognize the absolute finiteness of the experience that we get to have, the, the better, right? Because it kind of sets you up to have a better relationship with the um, experience that you're having. And then from that, usually then it's like, oh my God, this is finite. Okay, I want to do everything. I want to do everything. I want to eat every piece of food. I want to visit every single country. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to leave no experience unturned. The problem with that is that usually that if you follow that thread, you get caught in this um, process of continuously chasing the next experience from the perspective of I need to go and experience more things, right? And so the satisfaction actually isn't. I, like it's and look just to, just to be frank so i'll give a, a personal uh, uh story on this so i currently live in thailand cool and i was sitting here in this amazing place looking over the ocean thinking wow this is great and then my brain was like so where are you going to go next and i had to ask myself like i stopped myself because like my brain was like all right where should we move next is it going to be like africa or is it going to be like i can't and i and i realized that my brain was just seeking the next thing and i had to really ask myself why like, why would I want to do that? And I think that the more that we can start to question that, because I think that the, the real happiness is in the absence of desire and striving. Like when you can actually become, you know, really enriched and grateful in the moment so that you're not living in the striving. Now, there's a balance there because I think that you can only ever find the real meaning in life through consistently uh, doing hard things and uh, being, in, being in pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself. So there is an element of continuing to push 
And that sits in juxtaposition with also this idea that in the moment that you're in, everything is perfect and there's no need to have desire for the thing in the future, which presently is not the thing that you have right now. So I'd be interested to get your take on that, given the context of the things you just said. Yeah. Well, I mean, to put it simply, death death is stagnation. Please. Like if you if there's no further goal, if there's nothing that's pursuing you to move forward, like why do you wake up in the morning? You know, I, I find this very, very obvious with some friends of mine that have had to deal with depression. It's because they've lost sight of goals. They don't they don't have any goals. There's nothing there's nothing worth attaining for them anymore. And you gotta go, well, actually there's so much out there. The world is this beautiful, wonderful, amazing place and you can almost go out there and do anything. And part of the struggle, I guess, of that comes back to, you know, people are in the financial positions to be able to do anything like that. They feel the crippling pressure of all their mounting debts and everything like that. So one of my ways of combating that was to invest to make my money more uh, productive for me, learning about how money works. It's really interesting. So I want to dig into that because we we will talk about your um, um, property and stuff in in a moment. But the the impetus to invest, that's really interesting, right? Why did you choose to invest? And like a lot of people invest because they don't, they, there's not really a reason. They're just like, because that's what you do, right? You you save and you invest. There's, there's actually not a really clear, well thought out purpose. At what point did you, so, well, we'll talk about investing macro property. We'll park that for a second. But like, when did you start thinking about investing generally? Could have, and was it property first? Did you start thinking about other stuff? Did you try other things before you got into property? And what was the driver? I'm just trying to understand that kind of like early synthesis of your investment journey. I think it was more just about information gathering to begin with. It was, all right, how does money work? What is inflation? Like I was obviously having issues with um, my employers and stuff during those different times because I'm like, I want to earn more, but how do I earn more? So the constraint there is I need to become more valuable. If I become more value, I unlock that constraint. Okay, how do I continue to snowball these effects and, and make them compound on each other effectively to earn more o- over time? And I could see like a picture in my head was I need about $300,000 a year passively so that way I could live very comfortably, have a buffer in place in case of medical emergencies, but also have enough there to go out and travel across the world. That was the goal. And then I worked backwards. So yeah, it was like skill stacking, all right, cool. Now I've got some more money. I need to make that money work for me passively because the I have a finite amount of hours in the day. I, I can work sixteen hours a day, but my leverage isn't is not is not high enough. I need other vehicles to be able to leverage and make that money. And then yeah, learning about inflation, and then I was like, okay, cool. If I stayed eighty thousand dollars a year, what does that look like next year? Okay, my purchasing power is actually less. Okay, well, how do I fix that? So, like, property investing is a vehicle of many, but it was a vehicle that I looked at and was like, this one I think has the best safety to get to where I want to initially, and then as I become more proficient and I learn more about the game of finance, I will probably start to diversify and look at other asset classes. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting way to think about it, and and it's actually quite a sophisticated way to think about it, to, to be frank, a lot because a lot of people think about property investing and they're just like okay so what's the what's the idea let's just buy property buy properties more properties in fact i got in was emailed recently by someone who was looking to um join the dash dot team and you know they come with they sent me an email telling me their story and they've been in finance for whatever most of their life and all they've done for the last whatever 15 or 20 years is 
buy properties is any time they could buy properties, just buy another property, which is awesome. And he's very successful and he's very wealthy and fit brilliant, like love, lovely. Everything's worked out just fine. But also another way to think about from a diversification perspective, it's kind of like, well, could could your could you build a property portfolio that has a really, in my opinion, the best risk adjusted return, um, realistically, because it's a fair, it's quite low risk, quite high return based on the risk. But from a diversification perspective, could you then start to use that property portfolio to fund small bets in other areas? Um, I know people that, for example, have um, leveraged the equity out of their portfolio to start a business, right? Or, and I know other people who've leveraged equity out of their portfolio to do some angel investing or any of these other uh, kind of things. So I think it's a, it's a good way to think about it, you know, and I 100% agree with you. Obviously, Dashdot is in the business of helping people invest in property, but realistically what we're actually in the business of helping people to do is to create a better life and it just so happens that for us we have a specific expertise in the property side of things that we can execute on really really well but it's not the whole story <laughs> you know it's like you've got to take a, a broader view on all of this kind of stuff so i'm interested it's really cool that you, had, you got really clear on your goal first you know the three hundred thousand dollars all right that's what that's what a good life looks like to me that's awesome because that gives you a really clear target to aim for, um, which allows you to work backwards from that. How like how is that journey tracking? Do you, is that still the goal? Like, talk to me about that progress on that journey. Yeah, it's still the goal. So it started off like prior to my engagement with Dashdot was I was buying shares. Like I, I had limited savings at the time, and I'm like, okay, I'll invest some time. I'll learn about the stock market. I invested then, and I had some quite very good returns to begin with. But I was like, I'm getting success and I don't know why I'm getting success. So I considered it to be high risk, although I had the return and I, that allowed me then to put down my first deposit for a house after I liquidated that. I, on reflection, I was like, I actually got incredibly lucky. Yes. But in terms of the journey, you're like, everything's still coming across nicely. So the plan was to still continue to increase and in stack skills, which has allowed me to earn more money in my primary place of work. My lifestyle probably for the last five years hasn't changed too dramatically. So, which each raise and that skill stacking and has allowed me just to save and compound more, which is then being funneled back into the property game. So, the goal is, yeah, looking at purchasing my second property with you guys, hopefully early next year, uh, and then continue going down that path. And then, probably after I have a solid foundation and feeling quite comfortable with how that portfolio is starting to shape up, then I might start looking at other asset classes. Maybe I might pull some equity out and then I might just go like absolutely ham on doing my own business thing. Yeah, totally. That typically the 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 base point for that is like four or five properties. So if you kind of like get yourself to that point where you've got, say, let's say five properties in the portfolio, that's the that's not gonna be you're not gonna be buying freaking, you know, super yachts, right? But you have a base then that you can rely on that gives you a platform to then start to think a little bit differently. I actually find that that is the greatest that's the biggest freedom point because that's when people realize they can actually have more autonomy like sure you haven't replaced your income right but you're in a position where you've got this wealth engine that is happening that all of a sudden you go huh okay i'm pretty good now 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 what do i really want to do like let's let's it unlocks a, bu- a bunch of optionality in your life uh, so i'm super excited for that let's talk about let's talk about your first property purchase now before we go into the details what i actually want to talk about is your psychology leading up to that because investing in property is a big thing. Like, sure, you, you're an information sponge. You'd like to soak things up. But the like 
people have heard me say on this podcast before, 71% of property investors get stuck at the first property, 19% get to property number two. But the largest cohort of property investors have got zero properties. They're the ones that are like, they may have even made the decision that property is the thing for me, right? So they've gone through the information gathering stage. They're like, yep, right, property is the thing for me. But they still suffer from anxiety. It could be analysis paralysis, but it could also just be genuine fear, confusion, doubt. And so the largest cohort of property investors has zero properties because they're just trying to get off the starting blocks. And I'd love to ask you a little bit, what was your what were your feelings, your emotions, your psychology in the in the process of getting started? Talk me through that. Yeah, well obviously it wasn't it wasn't the lightest decision to be able to make. Like you come from a place where you've gone, this is the last however many years of savings that I've got. And now I'm entrusting this to go into something to hopefully grow. Like that's a, it seems it's a big commitment. So you go around, you study as much as you can. And I just got to a point where I'm like, I feel like I'm young enough that I could bounce back if this was to go to absolute shit. I've saved this up. This is something I want to invest in. At worst case, if it all blows up and I have to liquidate it, I have a lesson learned. And I feel that at my current age, I can absorb lessons learned for a few more years before they start to really turn into a big impact. Now, that, that's not to say that the decision's not harder for those with families or other kind of commitments. And at the time, I had none of that. I was single. I lived with a, a group of friends in a share house trying to keep costs down. I felt like I aligned the position of my life to be perfectly to execute on something when it came up. Yeah. So when I found Dashdot, and amongst other ones, I gravitated towards you guys because of your analytical approach. That that was for me. It was like, okay, cool. They're using more tools than just a guy that's driving around in a hotspot saying that that house over there is going to do well. And I was like, I like that. And I know that most like of the best CEOs and stuff in the world, they say if they've got eighty percent of the information, they execute. The rest of it, they'll work out on the way. And I'm like, I'm getting stuck here in analysis paralysis. What is that tipping point? And then I was like, I have enough information. The numbers look good. I've gone through the broker. They said this is how much it's going to, to start to get to get you into the game. The rest of it will just flow in from there. And I just went, it's time to go. Yeah. So I, in a way, it was a leap of faith, but I felt like I crossed enough of the the dot points in my mind to say that I think this is safe enough that I can execute. But taking the so there's two there's two leaps that you had to leap there. One was the leap of I'm going to invest in property. That's the first leap. The second leap is I'm going to pay somebody else to help me do it, right? And I'm interested to know uh, like th- about the the second leap. Like like I'm I'm grateful that you that you made a decision to work with Dashdot and and uh, you know the results you've received are, are, you've you've kind of been exceptional. We'll talk about that in a moment. But just the choice to as opposed to doing it yourself, like what why would why did you decide that okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to work with somebody else versus um, well, I could save more of my money and I could just do it myself. Like, why, why didn't you choose the DIY path? Yeah, a big part of it, I would boil down to time. I, I could see that property was accelerating at such a rate that my savings rate wasn't going to be able to catch it for long at that particular point in time. So that was the first part. So I was like, there's a time limit here. I, yeah, I'm saving, I'm doing well, but the goalpost continues to shift in front of me and I'm seeing it happen in real time. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess like, and I'm not trying to, um, like in inform your answer, but like there must have been a part there must have been a part of you that that was kind of like uh even though the capital requirement is higher, 
I'm de-risking my position by by trying to like work with somebody else because I did the two things. It's either like I think I can just do this myself, or shit. Am I am I actually gonna I'm actually gonna get a better outcome if I just ask? Time is one thing, but outcome is also another. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the next part would be like I, I understood that investing in other places that weren't local to me would be a way in because like where where I live, everything's like eight hundred thousand million dollars, and I'm like, well, the capital requirements that's far too high. Yeah. So I, I need to look elsewhere. And I know many people that have tried to go down that path of like buying where they know and, and the results vary. And it keeps coming back to is you're not a property specialist. Like I don't have the time to go out and invest in technology, invest in people, invest in staff, learn about all this. Like I will learn it over time and hopefully I, that will make me a better investor and I can make more informed decisions. But in order to execute now and to get working capital now, it's better to leverage the expertise of other people. Yeah, that's super interesting. You mentioned around the um, the buying non-local. That that so it's a really super interesting discussion because you're renting right now, right? Correct. So you're rent vesting. So your choice um, has been. And where do you where did you say you live again? I, I live in Doncaster in Melbourne. Okay, cool. And so you're living where you are choosing to live for for any number of reasons: social circle, close to family. Like you really like Doncaster for for some reason, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, whatever the case may be, like you're living there because that's where you choose the, to live. But if you look around you, the you know the median house price is eight hundred thousand dollars, and so there's a big, massive viewpoint for particularly early stage investors or people that have got no properties or whatever. Where they're like, you can't afford to buy a property, and it's like, well, that's because Statistically speaking, the vast majority of people are living in places where the median house price is, you know, over eight hundred thousand dollars, probably over a million dollars. And so naturally, you look around, you go, "Well, I can't do that." By taking the viewpoint of like, "But what if? What if I could actually invest somewhere else?" You actually then open yourself up to the potential and the possibility to, like, as you were saying, because you can't save faster than the property market is, property market is growing. So it's like, how can you participate? How can you actually get more leverage? Uh, there's four. There's four types of leverage. Uh, Dan Martel calls them the four C's: um, capital, code, collaboration, and um, capital, code, collaboration, and content, right? And which is basically media and you know all this kind of stuff. And what we're talking about here is a capital leverage. So how can you get your money to work for you? How can you get more leverage out of it? And how could you have your savings rate plus then have an asset which is also then accelerating your position as well, so that over time you can get to a position where you can then start to make different economic decisions. But I'm a massive advocate of rent vesting. You know, we rent right now. I have no plans to buy a, buy a home, any, maybe ever, right? What do you think about rent, rent vesting? I think it's the greatest decision you could make, especially if you're financially conscious. Like, there are so many rules now for renters that it more or less might as well be your, your principal place of residency. Like there's so many protections. You can have animals. In Victoria you, particularly, right? In Victoria, yep. You can pretty much get away with most things, you know, just be a good good renter. But financially, it just seems to make more sense. Like if you want to be able to put your money to work, you want to lower your risk to the bank. So it means you've got to make sure that your overheads are lower. If you're taking on debt through owning a principal place of residence, then, you know, we looked at the repayments and I was like, to live where we are now and have a mortgage. Even after putting down twenty percent, we're still looking at like seven to eight thousand dollars a month in repayments. I'm like that's yep. just not feasible. Our quality of life then diminishes, and all we've got is a roof over our head. Yeah, which you already had if you were just renting. Like you're out a roof over your head for way less cost in the same location. Not only that, it also if you buy the home, you have non-income producing debt. So then 
all of your ability to then go and get additional debt to go and continue to grow your wealth. Come on. And I see that's happened so many times where people go, you know what, I'm just going to go buy the home. And look, there are occasions where buying a home can make more sense than buying an investment property, but they are very few and far between. Um, and so my recommendation is typically like, until you've built the wealth, don't think about buying the home. Do that later. Yeah, I, I, my projection at the moment is if all things are equal and, and do well, I'll probably be able to have a good deposit to buy where we would like in five years' time. Nice. That, that's, that, that would be a goal. And nice. even then, I was like, if I want to go buy a principal place of residence, I'd probably want to even hire Dashdot to find it for me. Yeah. <laughs> because at least then I could buy something that I know is going to grow and, and do well. And if I ever wanted to be in a position to recycle the equity that was in that, I know that that asset would have at least gone up at a like, substantial That's rate. assuming that the right time and right, like we, we can't, we're not magicians. We don't just go find a property <laughs> and then like cast some spells and throw some sand on it and all of a sudden it grows. Like it's burn a, some it, incense. Yeah, burn some incense and do a bit of a rain dance or a money, rain, rain money dance or something. It's like it has to be the right property, right place, right time. Now, that may coincide with where you also want to live potentially, but statistically speaking, probably not. But speaking of, um, you know, speaking of growth and all of these wonderful things, we did buy a property about nearly two years ago, about 23 months ago, this property settled. Um, let's talk through that. There's a couple of really interesting characteristics about this property. Number one, the purchase price is $220,000, which just for anyone listening, the ability to buy $220,000 properties today is significantly diminished. So, Yeah, they're hard to find. Very hard to find uh, a, a good quality. You could probably find them, but like uh, what we would consider to be a, a good investment at $220,000 rare pretty rare very not impossible but highly unlikely so you managed to buy a property for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars which is crazy how did you how do you feel about that that you bought a property for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars do people believe you when they when you say that you bought a property for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars the price wasn't really the question it was like why would you buy interstate and i just kept coming back to the same thing i'm like well look at it look what it's doing look how it's growing we had the numbers before I even committed to the purchase, and it looked—it just looked great on the on the sheet. Like, why wouldn't I buy? I'd be silly not to buy. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, looking back on it now, like it's been one of the best purchases I've made. Hands yeah, down. F- full stop of anything you've ever done. Because let's dig into some of the numbers. So we bought that property for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars with a yield at purchase of eight point seven five percent. Which, again, for everyone listening, don't get too excited. Very hard to find yields like that, and today's uh, today's environment as well settled about 23 months ago the valuation we got on it most recently was three hundred and fifty one thousand dollars which means that in 23 months between the settlement and the valuation so we bought that more than 23 months ago now but between the settlement and the valuation was 23 months it grew by 59.55 percent which is insane what's more insane is what that actually means financially and from a return on invested capital the two hundred a two hundred and twenty five percent two hundred twenty five point six percent return on invested capital, and which has given you a hundred and thirty one thousand dollars increase in your net worth. When you think about those numbers, like you're a pretty um, detailed or detail oriented guy, you're very deliberate with your approach to how you're thinking about this. You're not just kind of shooting from the hip. You're really thinking this through. When you hear those numbers, how do you how does it how does it make you feel? Because they almost sound like unbelievable. Yeah, well, you got to pinch yourself. A little bit and go how likely is this to be able to repeat itself and the answer is probably not very likely so i'm i'm consider myself very lucky and 
it seems like one of those scenarios where the stars sort of just all aligned. I was in the right place, the right time, spoke to the right people, did the right purchase, and, and now I'm I'm reaping rewards of the, of that. And I, I couldn't be more grateful. Honestly, it's been it's been a hell of a journey, and I'm just getting started. It's exciting. That's a pretty good place to to be launched. To, pretty good launch pad. Like for you to be able to make one hundred thirty one thousand dollars in twenty three months. You know, it was sixty five thousand additional dollars. Now that's not cash in your bank, but that is equity that you can use to then go fund additional purchases. That's going to massively accelerate you. And you mentioned you're looking to buy again in the next uh, couple of months. Are you planning to use the equity from that property, or have you saved up an additional deposit? How have you thought about that? It's a combination of both at the moment. So we had it re had the desktop reevaluated at three hundred fifty one thousand. Had an equity release of that of one hundred and ten. Now that's sitting in a, sitting in the offset account against the property at the moment, and then with the the way the current interest rate works, I've just lumped all of my savings in that offset account. So I'm paying even less. Even talk, at talk to talk to that talk to that because a lot of people don't think that's a really solid move that you did. Explain the logic behind dumping all of your savings into the offset account and what that's doing for you because a lot of people won't be thinking about that. Yeah. So the crux of it was, we'll just use round numbers. If I've got a hundred thousand dollars in savings in an interest account, earning interest at 5%, that becomes taxable money against my name, right? So I don't want to pay any more tax. I, 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 I want to maximize my investment. The best way I could do that is go, well, what's, what's the offset? Oh, I could offset my mortgage by the same amount. So now I, I'm increasing how much I'm saving technically per year. I'm moving that money into the offset account and now I'm not being against like money that's going to get taxed against my name. Yeah, love it. It's the easiest way to like cut your interest rate down because effectively you're getting an effective return on capital that is equal to the interest rate on 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 your debt. It's it's a such a smart way of doing it. It's kind of it's it's a really smart way. That's what we do. So we just basically dump everything into our offset accounts um, and then use that as a as a kind of um, uh, the fund from there. So that's pretty awesome. So I'm so stoked with that result. How are you thinking about the next purchase? Like, are you just kind of like, okay, now that I've kind of seen one happen, like, I'm just, you know, I'm just like, a lot of the kind of doubt that you had in the first purchase, are you, are you kind of beyond that now? Or are you thinking about it with apprehension? Like, how are you thinking about moving into this second purchase? Yeah, so there's two things that come to mind. The first one is, uh, what's my next constraint? There's going to become a tipping point where my borrowing capacity will start capping out. So how do I deal with that? Do I start looking at trusts? Do I start looking at, moving assets in a different way? Do I have to then look at improving my personal income to kind of keep ahead of that? Like, what does that tipping point look like? The second is, well, how much can I realistically afford? So what are my holding costs in purchasing another additional property? And what's what's the likelihood that it will outperform the holding costs? So it just, be- it just becomes a math equation at this point. This is just the game of finance. So good. So that- yeah, the first property is it's done. It's done deal in the bag now. I, I know what most of those costs look like. I can factor them in. Now it's just like how how much safety do I I want to have? So I just forecast like what are my living expenses look like for three months? That just sits in the offset account. I know what that round number looks like. The rest is all just basically equity that can get moved around and displaced wherever. Love it. I love that you said it. It becomes a math equation, right? So what that says is like you're taking the emotion out of it, which is perfect. Because um, it's super normal for anyone listening to this to be emotional on the first purchase because it's a bit big. 
right? It's big. You're taking a big step. You're, it's a very large, several hundred thousand dollar purchase. There's all this debt. It's, all this stuff is happening for the first time. And also, in a very real sense, you're sort of taking a bet on your future. You're like, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. The only reason you're investing is because you want to create a better life for yourself in the future. You're taking all of this, like there's heaps of unknown and all that kind of stuff. So it's really normal to be very emotional about the first one. The sooner that you can transition your mindset to a, a more like numbers-oriented approach, right? It's maths, right? What am I doing here? What's the return on capital? How do I think about capital allocation? How fast do I want to go? Where are my buffers? What is this? What's the, as soon as you do, the sooner you do that, the faster you go and the less risk you inherently have by taking the emotion out of it, which is a really interesting um, byproduct. It's kind of like you have the emotion because you're scared of the risk. But in fact, if you could remove the emotion, you actually have less risk, which is an interesting, uh, interesting transition. I want to ask you, um, as someone who's on this journey, what are some of the biggest lessons um, that you've learned on this kind of transition or alternatively, um, or in addition, either way, what advice would you have? Well, maybe we'll start with the lessons and then maybe we'll go to the advice. What are the, what are the biggest lessons you've learned? The lessons is definitely to try and remove emotions from it. And the way I do that is I try to gamify the numbers. So I fixate on the numbers more than I do about the emotion of the property. Like I've known a few people who've bought investment properties that are like, you know, but if anything goes wrong, we can drive over and we can fix it. And it's like, well, I don't want something that's consuming more of my time. The whole idea I got on the property investment journey was to automate some of my income and hopefully expand on that over the future and compound it. So gamifying the numbers for me was a really big one. Another lesson learnt during the journey. Well, if that's, that could even, that's fine. You don't have to have like nine lessons. We don't have to have a listicle. I think learning how to gamify the numbers is a great lesson, right? How, like breaking it down into that kind of a system because of what it does is it kind of creates an external way to think through the process, which is pretty good. Let's, let's, let's pivot to advice because a lot of people are sitting there, you know, going through, you've recently gone through a lot of these emotions, right? And so having now gotten to the other side of some of them, now you're about to get onto your second purchase, which will put you in, you know, you're, you're starting to move into like the, the upper category of property investors once you get to property number two. What advice would you have to someone who is thinking about getting started? I'm going to default back to the numbers and trying to just find systems that automate that for you and make that like holding that property and how it works, just yeah. containerize it in a way so that it's its its own organism and you're just kind of looking in the outside, checking in on it like a, I don't know, a father figure or something going, is it doing something stupid? Yes or no? Okay, cool. Let it go. Let it do its thing. Because it will. It will just hum along in the background. You've got property managers. You've got people who will manage all that stuff for you. You know, I set up my own separate accounts for it. it. Basically, I didn't really look at it for like two years. I was just like, does it require any maintenance? Make sure that the tenants are happy. Make sure that it's rented. That was my only, only thought post-purchase. The rest of it was just about working on like there's productive debt and there's unproductive debt. You need to understand the difference between the two because that, that is, those will be the, the vehicles or the fundamentals that will help you grow your wealth. Love it. Love it. And just a couple of tips if anyone's listening to this, a way, some ways that you can systemize that approach so that you can remove some of the mental friction and increase the systemization. If you, so no, step number one is build a good relationship with your property manager, right? If like spend some time with them, get to know them, build a, build a relationship, but then get 100% of any property expenses put through the property management. So rates, bill, water, um, maintenance, 
don't pay any invoices yourself for any reason that's directly related to the property if you can possibly avoid it. Get the property manager to pay through the Even if you have to contribute money to the trust account so that the property manager then pays it, what you end up with is you end up with one consolidated statement of all of the expenses. You then also have a have a direct like have one place where the funds exist for the property. Whether it's like everything comes in and out of an offset account, the rent goes out of the offset account, the expenses go out of the offset account, whatever the case may be, one place for the property so that you can very easily, in a moment's notice, open up your bank account and you can see all the comings and goings in a really simplistic way. That removes all of the kind of friction and confusion. We're like, ah, oh, where's this? And we got the rates notice. Who's paid this? Where's the bill? And get like just just get rid of it all. And that way you can simplify it. And the more that you can systemize it and simplify it, the more, to your point, you can kind of almost forget about it. I mean, Gabby and I kind of like forgot about our portfolio for a little while and we we did a uh, we got a bunch of valuations done recently and it was like we had like nearly a million dollars worth of equity just sitting there and we were like, what the hell? Like we'd just forgotten, we'd basically just forgotten about everything and then like whatever it was, 12 or 18 months had gone past and we were like, wow, like what the hell has happened? And so this is what happens over time, particularly then you can then shift your focus to other things you know you can shift your focus to okay where am i gonna how am i gonna focus on you know skill stacking like you've talked about increasing your capability to go and compound at a faster rate so i think it's really i think it's really really good advice uh actually um i'm over time and i wanted to know do you have any questions you want to ask me i wrote three before but i think after re-reviewing them two of them are probably the best ones so okay you can ask whatever you want as an entrepreneur goose what personal traits or skills do you believe are crucial for your success in your field? And how do you cultivate and develop those qualities within yourself and your team? Mm. Uh, traits and skills are two, different, two very, very different things. I think that resilience is one of the most important things, particularly in entrepreneurship and business. Like it's, it's tough. It's hard. It's really hard. Harder than most people. Uh, unless you do it, you won't, rec- you won't realize how hard it is. Um, and so developing the capability to be highly resilient and to not quit when things get hard is, is really, really important. And you can cultivate that, by the way. You can cultivate by just choosing to do hard things. You know, very simple example is if you go and do weightlifting, right, you, you're choosing to do uncomfortable things. So you're like, I'm going to lift this weight. I'm not sure if I can lift it. It's gonna, like, so the more that you can kind of frame your, train your mind to believe that you can do hard things, the more that you build up resilience muscles. So that's why you typically see um, uh, people that have got a background where they've experienced some degree of adversity or some degree of significant personal challenge or whatever, where they've kind of like ha- had it really tough, that they, they tend to be highly correlated with good entrepreneurship stories. It doesn't mean that if you've had a wonderful life, it doesn't mean you can't be a great entrepreneur, but there tends to be a high correlation there. So I think resilience is a, is, a, yeah, is a key element of it because where most people go wrong, and this is a macro statement, not just business related, but where most people go wrong is that they quit anything, right? Like whatever it is. It could be a fitness pursuit. It could be, uh, you know, it could be anything. They quit. But if you take quitting off the table, it doesn't mean that you there aren't things that you should stop doing. But if you take the kind of macro quitting off the table, um, then there's almost the only other outcome is success. So I think if you can kind of develop that uh, trait, I think that's really, really, really important. I also think there's some other um, key considerations in there as well where, you know, in order to be successful in business and entrepreneurship, you have to recognize that the most important thing is people. And we really, really, we recognize that really, really, uh, really on. 
if you can genuinely care deeply about other people, so the people on your team, the people you serve, all of that kind of stuff, there's on, only good things are going to happen. Like the rest of it will put it kind of sort itself out. So high degrees of empathy and high, de- high degrees of consideration on that front are super important as well. From a, like a hard skills perspective, um, I think um, understanding finance is critically, critically important. Um, I remember uh, Dashdot was about a, nearly a year old and we'd had some degree of success um, uh, in some ways, like, you know, revenue had gone up and whatever, but we weren't making any profit and I don't know, it was a bit of a mess. And one of my our mentors at the time, he said, Goose, do you know what your problem is? You've got no business acumen. And I was like, wow, wow, he's 100% right. I've got, it was like, it was like being smacked around the head with a big book, right? I was like, mm-hmm. like I was simultaneously in that moment offended and also I was like, he's yeah, right. He's right. I was like, he's fucking right. I'd worked out how to make money, but I hadn't actually worked out like the business side of business, right? And the language of business is accounting. And so the first thing I tried to do was like, okay, well, how does business work? And so then I started to try and learn the numbers. P- prior to that, in my previous uh, previous life, previous business or whatever, um, you know, I would have people who who would try who tried to kind of like tell me that I didn't really understand numbers. But the more I get into the numbers, the more I love the numbers. Now I now I live in spreadsheets. Yeah. So I think understanding that, and once you zoom, there's you can simplify business down to a couple of really key components, right? If you zoom up high enough, the only two things that matter is people and money, right? And if you understand that, people, people, people and finances, they're the only two things that, that you need to make the business go. That starts to then crystallize where you need to put your focus. Because if you can build the right team, if you can learn how to manage the economics in the business appropriately, like, and if, you know, build a good culture, do all these kind of things, the business is going to grow, kind of, kind of wh- whatever you're doing. I think that's really important because I see a lot of business owners, they don't, um, they don't trust their team or they're too tight but like, like they don't understand these bits and it kind of like shoots them in the foot later on but if you can really zoom in on those things and then the other thing i'll just say on on the thread of entrepreneurship just in case part of this question is because you're thinking about uh this application for yourself there's only three things you need to think about in terms of to, to make a business go it is um traffic conversion and uh your product or service so the three things are is like where are you, where how are you going to get attention for the thing that you've got how are you going to turn that attention into clients or customers? And then how are you going to deliver a world-class service or deliver a world-class product? Then those three, that's the only three things you need to think about. So that would be, uh, I hope that was a decent response to the question you're asking. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of parallels between what you've just said and then people who actually do invest in property because there are a lot of the things that you've mentioned before that I apply to my current portfolio. So like I, I send every year a hamper to both the property manager and the tenant. Love it. Uh, I, I invest in the tenant. The tenant's like, this is wrong. I get it fixed straight away. Love it. Love it. It's, and it's so good. And, and you're right because like when you think about building a property portfolio, you, it's a business, right? It's not a bunch of properties. It's a, it's a real estate business. You're the CEO of a real estate business. Your clients are the people that are buying accommodation solutions from you, right? So you have an, you're highly incentivized to take good care of your clientele, Right. But then also, in order for your business to be successful and effective, what do you need? Well, you need to get really good at capital allocation and capital management, and you need to get really good at building the right team. And the team could constitute, you know, people like Dashdot, but also um, your property manager, your uh, broker, your all of this other kind of thing. And so that it translates absolutely to the idea that it's like your job as the CEO of you or as the CEO of your portfolio is. How do you manage capital and how do you build a world-class team? 
And then how do you take care of your clients, right? And if you do that effectively, you're going to have a fantastically successful property portfolio. So it's a great connection. It's the same lens. That's how I view it at the moment anyway. Love it. Good to hear. You said you had a second question. I was, the second question was going to be, can you share a story of a particularly challenging or risky property acquisition decision that paid off given your data-driven approach? That's an interesting question because I think risk only exists on a, in a kind of like a vector of both perspective and information. So we have never objectively made a risky property acquisition, particularly not for a client. However, depending on your perspective, you may, you may view that statement to be incorrect. Yeah. Now, um, I, didn't, I don't have any uh, like numbers uh, prepared for this, but I'll give you a couple of the anecdotes. So uh, one of our team members, Nick, who's been on the podcast plenty of times and all that kind of stuff, he came to us uh, initially as a client. And when we were buying a property for him, you know, I, there was zero risk for me. I was like, this is going to be a rocket ship. Uh, but the location selection and all of this kind of stuff, he was unsure about it. He was like, man, this feels like, uh, you know, why are we buying in this area? And, you know, it was like a slightly lower socioeconomic and all of this kind of stuff. And so depending on how you view that, you could view that as being risky in inverted commas. For me, the risk was like so crazily low, but that was because of number one, my perspective and number two, the amount of information I had, the understanding I had and the perspective I had on the information. Now, the net result of that is that, that property p- performed, I, I can't even remember, it was like 50, 60% crazy, cr- insane amounts of growth, right? And it set him up to suddenly scale a really successful portfolio. So the, the outcome is there. Another example uh, of that that I'll give a little, another little anecdote was um, there's, a, there's a town called Port Augusta in Australia, uh, in South Australia. Now, I wouldn't advocate for first-time investors to invest in Port Augusta, right? So it on a kind of like a spectrum of risk, it is more risky than, say, buying in a more blue chip location for, for a variety of reasons. It's a, it's a very small town in a quite regional part of uh, South Australia. Like the things you typically look for in location selection, the jobs, lifestyle, and affordability. I'm not sure about the lifestyle in Port Augusta. Like it's a lot of red dirt. There's not a lot going on there. It's sort of a truck stop town. It's a bit you, you, you know, like you could very easily kind of go, geez, why? And, you know, and I know a lot of people would be like, why the hell would you invest in Port Augusta? I purchased there for myself, for Gabby and I, because I could see the data and I was looking at the data and I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be insane. Like, this is going to be. Um, but I was very careful about who I'd recommend that to because, because not because I thought it would, um, you know, blow up, but, but there's an inherent uh, risk element to it because of its, uh, you know, it's a smaller uh, population base. There's high degrees of volatility. It's like a small cap stock. If you look at, if you look at um, small cap stocks on the stock market that have less trading volume, there's much more liable to swings, right? And so there's so there's there is an element. There was an element of that. But for me, I was like I was like ready to bet the farm on it. I was like, this is the the surest thing in the freaking world. Like this, there's only one way this will go, and that is up. And and that's what happened. So we we bought a property there, and I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but Bought the property for like 180 grand, and I don't know. Twelve months later, it's it's you know two two fifty two two two. I think it might be actually gone two seventy two eighty. So I think we made like a hundred grand on it in uh, in twelve months. Uh, but based, but from a, such a low capital base, it's tremendously high growth rate, right? Yeah, so that's insane. 
It's insane. And uh, and so, again, it depends on your risk. Because I was looking at it and I was going, there's basically no risk. Gab- Gabby was a bit like, are you sure? And I was like, I am 100% certain. Like, there's not, there is not even 1% of doubt in my mind that this is only going to go up. So for me, the risk was really low. But for somebody else, that might that may be perceived. But we, we've never so, – so if we didn't think about risk, the way that we've always approached things um, is would I buy this for my mother or my brother? Mm, okay. Right? And if the answer is no, okay, well, then don't do it. Like then you shouldn't be buying it for anyone. And so if you can, if you're then measuring risk on that kind of a kind of a level, it's like we've never bought something where we're like, geez, whew, geez I hope this is going to work out. We only we would only ever do it if we had an extremely high conviction that it would work out, which inherently means that we don't believe a lot of risk exists in the asset. And so, really comes down to to the perspective because I would I would argue that there's so many um, ways to consider risk, and I think a lot of people don't think about this deeply enough either. You know, you could say, "Oh well, uh, buying a buying a property in Bondi Beach is that is that low risk or high risk?" I'm mean, ask someone, and they're going to say, "Well, Bondi Beach is always going to be popular, and therefore it's uh, low risk and it's it's blue chip." Sure, except for the fact that it went down by twenty five percent, just like I don't know the like last year or whatever it was, right? Okay, well, that went backwards by twenty five. I've never bought in a location has gone back by twenty five percent. Or view it from another perspective. What is the actual biggest risk? The single biggest risk is that you never achieve your goals. So then the risk changes. The risk changes from like, do I think this is going to go up or down to is this selection of of, this asset selection going to progress me towards my goals? You mentioned constraints earlier, which I thought was awesome, right? And so there's three constraints in the portfolio, access to capital, access to debt, access to cash flow. And if you don't correctly optimize for the constraints, then you could find yourself getting stuck. And if the goal is achieve the life of your dreams, the single biggest risk is that you make choices that disallow you from achieving that outcome. And so even if you were to buy, let's say you bought a property in Bondi, and I have nothing no, nothing against Bondi, it's just an easy um, uh, suburb to, to pluck. If you bought a property there, what if, what if that stopped you being able to move forward? What if that chewed up all your serviceability? What if by buying a home first, you were unable to access any more debt, would that actually be the highest? Even if you bought in a great location, if you were unable to progress on your journey, would that in fact be the highest risk that you could take? Maybe. And so I think risk um, is a really interesting consideration and has to be viewed from multiple directions. Um, But again, back to the core kind of essence of the question, have we ever kind of like acquired a property where we're like, well, this is risky and i hope it works out no we've never done that so um yeah i hope that 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 how'd you what, what are your thoughts on that response no yeah, I, I like that because it, it it ties in a lot of perspective and it's more useful to the individual to to, to determine what that risk is and i i completely agree with the the notion that the risk is different per person like a risk for me now would be going out and buying a million dollar property it would completely stunt my growth there would be like now i'm tied into a debt now I can no longer invest. Like I'm stuck. The only way to get rid of that now is to remove the asset, reset, take the loss, start again. The cause of not doing something is riskier than the cause of doing something. And I can't remember off the top of my head what that's called. It is. But yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got all the like opportunity cost risk and all of that kind that's of stuff it. as well. Opportunity cost. Opportunity cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which is a lot, a lot of what people don't think about, particularly um, particularly the people who are, you know, again, talking about the largest cohort of investors, the ones that have got zero properties, you know, you know like every, like in a very pragmatic sense, um, I'm not, I'm not going to do maths whilst we're um, talking because I'll stuff it up. But, but broadly speaking, if you buy a five, if you were, if the, if you have the opportunity to buy a five hundred thousand dollar property, and if it grows by, um, you know, for, for Dashdot, the average growth that we get in the first twelve months is about sixteen percent. I did the maths on it once, and it's like if you choose not to invest, it's costing you about two hundred dollars a day based on a five hundred thousand dollar property growing at sixteen percent, which is the average growth. Not everyone gets sixteen percent; the average across uh, all their clients over twelve months. So then the question is the opportunity cost. Uh, look, are you prepared to? Would you pay $200 to do nothing? Most people would say, "No, I'm not going to fucking pay $200 to do nothing." And it's like, well, yeah, that's that is the that is the financial cost of doing nothing. It's like $200 a day. Do you want? Do you want to pay? Would you? Would you send send me a $200 uh, check every day that you just want to sit on the couch watching Netflix instead of actually doing something about changing your life? Not only that, then you've got the second order effects of the compound rate over time and all of these other kind of factors. So yeah. I think that that is um, something that a lot of people don't take into consideration. I think I, I love conversations around risk because there's so many ways to to think about it. So mm. that's good. Cool, Josh. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been really great. Um, I, I'm excited for the for the rest of your journey. I'm excited to see how the next property purchase performs, and uh, it's really refreshing to get your perspective on all of this kind of stuff. I think there's a lot a lot of great thoughts that have been dug into on in this episode. So thanks. I appreciate your time. No worries, Goose. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. We'll see you on the next one.